Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr and you listen to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. The show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for listening to this episode, I hope you enjoy it. If this is your first time listening to my show, because I've picked up quite a few listeners recently and you know that keeps increasing, make yourself at home. You can find the back catalogue over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You can also sign up to my increasingly popular Substack newsletter as well while you're at it. Um, I'm out in Hossegore. I've been here for about five days now, actually. And uh, what a lovely, if (laughs) furiously hot time it's been. It's been the height of the June heatwave in Europe, which I think we've all agreed here is about as hot a temperature as any of us have ever experienced um, in our times alive on this continent, which I'm sure is nothing to worry about at all. But yeah, 48 degrees we uh, clocked it at in the car the other day. Um, you know, when, you, when you've got the rogue Scottish ginger gene that I've got, that is not that comfortable, to be honest. But, you know, we got through it and it's been a really good laugh. I'm here with my pals at DB, who I'm doing quite a lot of work with around the podcast um, at this point and in the future more of that in housekeeping corner. Um, I'm here with Owen and we're doing one of those classic looking sideways trips where we're just getting loads of stuff done basically. I did a live episode at the Wasted Talent Studio in which uh, I interviewed Sage Kotzenberg, Tim who you're going to hear from on this episode, Krista Funk and Kappa Asaro which was great. That one was on the, the theme of travel and creativity. Um, and yeah, then we've been hanging out, we've been surfing, I've been reminded how bad I am at surfing, which is what always happens when I come to Hossegore, but there you go, them's the breaks. And I've been recording a load of standalone episodes for this Hossegore omnibus, the first episode of which you're about to listen to now. And for this one, I sat down with the aforementioned Tim Myers, who is an award-winning and renowned cameraman, cinematographer, journalist, storyteller, skier, um, who's carved out an extremely interesting career for himself telling human interest stories as a freelance gun for hire for people like the BBC, CNN, the UN and many more. You might be familiar with Tim and his work if you realise it or not. He achieved some internet notoriety a couple of years ago when he was in Washington covering the June 2020 riots uh, and was attacked by riot police live on air while filming for an Australian TV network. Um, Kept filming. That went viral. Um, Tim and his colleague Amelia's Courage and Composure um, had quite an impact. They've won awards back home in Australia for uh, for that event and the prestigious Walkley Award for Excellence in Journalism. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, I had the chat. I was like, oh yeah, I, I remember this guy. Um, so it was really fascinating to hear his story um, and how he how he got into this world via his upbringing on an, on an Australian ski resort. It's a great tale. It's what we mainly spoke about during our conversation. I had the pleasure of hanging out with Tim for three or four days in Hossegore and I recognised almost immediately that I was dealing with a total legend. Funny, sharp, clever, curious um, and he's got this ability to make people feel really comfortable and uh, I think you can, I think that's going to c- come across in our conversation. So I really enjoyed this one. Plenty of lessons in here about how to embrace opportunities, the importance of blagging it even when you're learning on the job and why, if in doubt, just ask for help because people are going to help you. Big thanks to Tim and his partner Amy for being such great company during my time in France. Just a note to say that we recorded this during the aforementioned heatwave and the quietest and coolest place we could find at the DB Looking Sideways HQ in Hossegore was the garage. Um, 
So there's some background noise at various points, which I'm sure you'll be able to deal with, though. So I'll be back at the end for Housekeeping Corner, um, during which I've got a pretty exciting announcement, actually. Um, but in the meantime, here's me and Tim Meyer's Human Interest. Enjoy. How close are you going to go? Um, about there. Okay. And I... Had eggs for breakfast uh, with some <laughs> bacon bits. <laughs> John Weaver on the case. Uh, yeah, who? Well, no, it was, it was Mario was the MVP for breakfast. Oh no, and then sorry, John. John came in with a late pass and bought some some croissants, some yeah. pain au chocolat. Ma- Mario's been been a bit of a secret weapon actually on the food front. It's al- it's always the quiet ones. Yeah, that are demons at providing breakfast when everyone else is in a bit of a hungover state. Should we do the Umi plug? The Umi plug. Let me grab my. Um, Your refreshing Umi hard kombucha. My, 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 my ginger. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, it's actually pretty good though, isn't it? They're delicious. I'd, I'm not a like I'm not a beer drinker. Right. Just pause for a sip. It's like advertising when you do the art, ah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a beer drinker. Right. Um, and my my partner, Amy, she she makes a delicious kombucha at home, and I've slowly been weaned onto it, even right. despite seeing how it's made with the the scoby the little symbiotic alien life form yeah it's rather disgusting is that like a like the, like a sourdough thing where you have to keep yeah you have to keep keep what the, what's it called it's like a fungus or a bacteria it's it's a, it's a life form that you have to God, you have to feed it's it it's a name isn't it what's it what the fuck Do she's think- always she's always feeding this kind of our like the the third thing in our relationship it's this like little I can't believe I can't remember what it was called. Body just, of mass in the kitchen. Yeah, just because so many of my friends in the first lockdown suddenly took up making yeah. sourdough bread randomly enough. So, so, so despite knowing how it's made, yeah. this, this hard kombucha is absolutely delicious. Yeah, it's good. And it's also a little bit lethal. I had one the other night and I was like, wow, I feel... They of, sneak up on you. Kind of pissed. Yeah. After that. But no hangover. Yeah. It's all well, I only had one. I dare say if you, you know... Had a sesh on him, yeah. You, you might end up, but well, that's on you. Yeah. <laughs> so how are you, man? It's been great to meet you. Really enjoyed hanging out. It, it's it's been fantastic to hang out here for a couple of days, and likewise yeah. to meet you and some of the lads. Some I've I've hung out with already, but fantastic crew in a beautiful location. Yeah, it's been a nice vibe, hasn't it? Yeah, an incredible vibe. I mean, I just came from the beach. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was hot today when we were working and. It was, the beach was there, so we went and cooled off. Yeah. And I don't know, I can't think of better working conditions, really. Well, I was quite impressed yesterday when everyone was dying and you were like, I don't mind this. This is this is all right. And everyone else is like, this is like the the, the hottest <laughs> day of my life, like kind of thing. Well, I mean, to be to be fair, everyone else is Scandinavian. Or English. Uh, or, or English. Yeah, um, which is definitely yeah. Which you're less well-equipped. And I, I, I now, I grew up in a hot part of Australia during the summer. Um, I live in Los Angeles at the moment, which can be quite warm. And then I work a lot on the East Coast and down in the South, which their summers are incredibly... It's a different kind of heat. It's very humid, right? Very humid. Yeah. You sort a lot of, of moisture. Yeah. You, you just, you're just dripping um, without too much effort at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the, your little road trip that you're doing, which sounds amazing because for you, it's quite rare, isn't it? That you're not going to have, as we were saying yesterday, you're not going to, there's no real point other than to hang out, see a nice part of the world for you and Amy and yeah, the on next, a holiday. 
the next couple of days, that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, drive a couple of hours north up to Bordeaux and... Um, I've spent a bit of time in France in the in the Alps around Chamonix and La Grave, um, yeah. and we we were tourists in in Paris once um, upon a time, uh, and but we've never apart from the last few days we haven't been to the the coastal regions of France. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to explore that, and I'm just thoroughly looking forward to it because we're traveling with one bag as opposed yeah. to. I mean, my whole working life and a lot of 90% of the travel that I do is for work. Yeah. So, um, and that usually entails uh, dragging along, um, you know, anywhere between five to 15 Pelican cases, half of which are overweight. Yeah. Uh, and that's a whole different airport experience. So, to be able to just have pack this lightly and have one, one roller bag. Yeah. It's fantastic. I think I was saying to you when we did the live thing last night, when I watched that film that Sam's made about you for DB, that made me sweat a bit looking at your travel routine with the with just the number. Just I just thought, what a pain in the ass that's got to be. Like, the, I mean, obviously you must get used to it, but just the fact, like, average nine bags, you know, having to go through that rigmarole, some of the places that you go into, where I'm assuming the airports aren't exactly the slickest. Let's yeah. Say. Well, I, the the most amusing thing sometimes is the the look on the. The, the check-in person's face yeah when you roll when you're up. when you're when you're next in line and yeah. you, you're, you've got two trolleys worth and they half the time they're kind of looking around to see if they can go duck out on lunch break right um yeah but some airlines are, are far better than others I, I think in the u.s uh there's quite a lot of the the media does a lot of air travel uh, in the u.s and a lot of the airlines have uh if you have a press card or a media card um, the airlines have a program that you get a discount for all that excess baggage, so it you know it doesn't cost absurd amounts. It yeah. still costs a lot. Uh, so they they some country or some some airports and airlines do cater for it. Yeah, um, some are better than others, but then some are some don't at all. And then sometimes you might be in a place where you don't have much of a choice of airlines, and yeah, uh, you're you're forced to. I don't know. Sometimes your 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 bag. I've, I've been on some trips where. The airline kind of, they took it all and then they said, no, we hit the weight limit. So we left your stuff on the tarmac and I didn't see it again for, for two weeks. Right. Um, some funny stories there. I, I uh, it was one time I was, I was doing a, I was with the United Nations right. um, and we were in, we were in re- West Africa, um, tripping around a couple of the countries and uh, I arrived, my backpack arrived and my roller bag arrived, but all of that stuff had the essentials to do the job, which was all camera kit. Um, but the essential camera kit, so I think I, I didn't have one of my charges. I didn't have the luxuries, the light kit or anything like that. Uh, and of course, I didn't have any clothes. And my baggage ended up on a on a tarmac in Kinshasa in the Congo right. for sort of two weeks um, while I was in one set of clothes trying to, you know, <laughs> follow, do what I needed to do in the hottest parts of Africa Yeah. Um, that... <laughs> it was a it was a challenge. Luckily, I was I was with the United Nations, and they actually they donated me a um a couple of those UNICEF shirts. So right, I, I was, <laughs> so you could was, you could be really like inconspicuous. Yeah, you? well, yeah. It, it sort of worked the other way. One of the stops I was for one of the portions of it, I was with the the presidential delegation. Right, and we happened to have lunch with the the King of Ghana at the presidential palace, <laughs> and I'm in the same room as the king, dressed in in sort of you know donation clothing and everyone else is dressed appropriately and i was right i was there i had to be there because I was, I was working and i was filming um, right i was very much you know part of the protocol was you know i was there to eat as well and join in yeah because i was 
technically part of the delegation and they have all these protocols um, as, as, as visiting, um, visiting uh, members. And I, 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 that was a moment where I was kind of like, hide me in the, the darkest part of the room and right. no one, nobody look at me. Yeah. Uh, I eventually got all my stuff back, but it was on the, the very last night when I, I may as well have had no use for it whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, do you, can you, do you get better at rolling with that sort of scenario? I guess you must have to, right? It's just part of the, part of the job again. Do I what's kind, right? do you, that kind of travel mishap? That kind of pain in the ass that you're describing, bags not arriving, kit not arriving, must must be quite common with the amount of travelling that you do. Do you, it, do, it, you, do you like just, are you, are you pretty good at just shrugging it off now? Because, you know, you told that pretty casually, like, oh yeah, two weeks around Africa, like, you know, like around around these countries, like what? Well, I guess you, I've, I've sort of employed a couple of little, there's a few things that I do to make sure, I mean, on a trip like that, I'm there to work. So yeah. the things I carry on the plane, you know, most airlines you get to carry yeah. on. So that for me, that's the uh, the DB backpack and the, and the roller. Um and my most essential bits of my camera uh, and everything I need to do the bare minimum, you know, the, 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 the least amount of work that I can do, the bare minimum of my job is contained in those two bags. So if the worst does happen, yeah, like it did that time, um, I, I, I smell terrible, <laughs> but at least I can still, you can still do the somewhat work. Adequ- adequately do my job. Yeah. Uh, but it does happen occasionally. It, it, to be honest, the amount of travel that I do, it everything arrives safe and sound more often than not. Yeah. But I, in saying that, even just coming here to um to to France, my roller got I think it got lost in Paris. Right. And I had to wait a day for it to not arrive. And yeah, uh, I think when I first met you, I was I was you know a couple of days into the same clothes. Yeah, and you these, were back, you very were back down, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> in these very uh, hot conditions here. Yeah. So, so th- that United Nations trip that you just described. Um, because you, you're a freelancer essentially, right? Is yeah. That, is that the way that it works? Yeah, I've been, I've been freelance since. Uh, you know, I, I quit as a as a staff, uh, a staff employee in around 2014, 13 maybe. Right. In Australia. Yeah. And so they're effectively a client then. Is that like yep. somebody like that? Like so that you, you mix it up with like. I guess I'm just interested in how it works, how you choose the the slate. You know, how you choose like what you decide to do, like how, what jobs you choose. Is it is it a case of like. I've got enough of that type of thing or is it just what's coming through the door? Uh, I mean, I suppose you end up uh, doing what you know and you get recommended um, doing what you know because that tends to be what you're good at. Um, But I tend to, when you say, you know, what do you go and chase? It's probably more a case of, you know, what comes to you. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're freelance or you're a contractor. So you do have that discretion to say no if you want. But there's also a bit of the the mental game when you're a freelancer as well. How do I, am I sure I know when the next lot of work or the next shoot is coming through the door? So yeah. maybe I should just say yes. You know, there's a little bit of a paranoia there and I'm, yeah. I'm sure most freelancers have that. Yeah, well, um, you're always worried that, you know, it'll be the last job, aren't you? And And then, you know, the old conundrum, when work's lean, you're really stressed. And when you're busy, you kind of think, oh, I've got to wish I had a bit more time. You know, yeah. it's really difficult to enjoy those fallow periods I've, I've always found. But it, it doesn't take much for you to kind of have that paranoia. Yeah. I mean, I've been I've been very, very fortunate. I've been working consistently pretty much since I, I went freelance. It's, it's ramped up um, quite a lot the last couple of years and especially during COVID, which wasn't something I expected. But your work, having, your work increased. Basically. Yeah, it did. Right. But, but as... And even having that consistent work, you know, you could, if you, I could maybe go a week without a phone call and, right. and you know, that's all it might take for the paranoia to, yeah. to creep in. 
And do you, are you looking for particular types of story? Or like, because you, what you, I think one of the phrases that I liked in that film, you, t- you know, you, you, you say like, um, you know, it's about human interest, basically for you. Like that, that's the common theme that runs through the work and the stories that you try to tell. And it's, from looking at it, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a pretty broad range of topics that you cover, isn't it? You know, um, into, like there's, there's some kind of, you're doing something around Boeing at the minute, right? Which is like a like a, co- a corporate story, yeah. And then, well, and then you tell the stories of individuals. Like it's quite it's it's quite varied. So, how, what's the editorial process for you there? Uh, well, the I think more often than not, it's it's only a couple of maybe a handful of times a year I'll be involved in the editorial from the beginning, right? Uh, and typically, the editorial will all be you know it will have some form already by the time it I get the call, uh, and then the the producer. Um, or the network will usually say, "Look, this is this is the story. This is what yeah. we're doing. Are you available? You know, we'd love you to come along." And uh, and then it's sort of my responsibility to to shape their vision, but also, you know, I guess they probably come to me first because they like um, the way that I make things look. Yeah, hopefully. Or I could have just been the last guy available <laughs> and the fifth person they've called, and everyone else said no. It, it, I, I'm I'm never really sure. Yeah. Um, also part of the freelance game. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And LA is quite interesting like that as well. There's a handful of um, very talented Australian guys, right. Australian cinematographers over there. We're all good mates. Um, and we all, you know, we're, we're very lucky to be sort of busy enough that we can, you know, if I'm not available, I, there's, I can call one of these guys who I absolutely trust to do the, the job that the producer or the network or my client essentially will be happy yeah. with. And they can kind of, we can sort of back each other up a bit like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's next? What are you working on at the minute? Um, the next thing, well, I'm we're to be honest, I'm a little bit. Well, I'm not light on actually. I was I was about to say I'm a little bit light on. Um, my my fiance and I we just bought a house in Los Angeles, and that has has sucked up every waking minute that we've had going through that process. Um, so work has sort of i haven't really been chasing anything just because this has literally consumed the last three months of my life yeah um so all the work that i have been doing is still some fantastic projects uh, i was working all the way up until this trip uh, the last one i did was it was a um, abc investigation into the as you mentioned yeah the boeing 737 max jets yeah i watched um, the documentary about that recently it's a big netflix thing is it uh the, the one i'm working on isn't but the, I th- i'm sure there's that, a lot of but that that's stories that's, so i'm familiar with the story is what i mean yeah um, and it's like story of i guess like corporate manslaughter right it, I mean, well, that's probably not even strong enough is it but no basically it's i mean well what over 300 people were killed on yeah, these two jets that were brand new fucking couldn't believe it and it was like a software fault essentially yeah um i mean well one of them the ethiopian the lion air one they they blamed on the pilot more or less yeah um but yeah i mean I'd, without sort of getting too much into it, it yeah sort of devastated a lot of people's lives yeah you know, it's the 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 families um who who lost someone um and also i guess part of the industry as well because they grounded all those jets but they're they're kind of in the process of uh, recertifying them and getting them back into the air and the question is whether or not they've actually made changes that's going to prevent that happening again yeah some people that you know we spoke to a couple of whistleblowers i guess you'd uh, call them yeah Uh, and you know they're saying quite confidently no they haven't made the changes and that's that's sort of the crux of of that particular story and that was i mean that was only a a week-long shoot yeah um across uh three states in the u.s um 
And then before then, uh, I was in uh, Mississippi for CBS. Uh, I'm just trying to remember. Which, speaking of hot, that was <laughs> that was another level of hot and humid as well. Yeah. In, in Jackson, Mississippi, and in that area, and that was uh, that story. It was a, a feature story uh, doco that hasn't come out yet, uh, and it'll be focusing on uh, that particular area of the country has the highest rate of unsolved homicides. Right. And again, a lot of sort of victim impact. Um, interviews and and so there's that kind of human interest uh you asked me what i'm working on at the moment uh, or next so yeah so now i'll, I'll we'll have this little holiday uh, up north a little bit of time away um which is great because all we've been doing is packing things and moving boxes and yeah it's been very uh, uh unglamorous uh so we're looking forward to having a few days away uh that doesn't involve some kind of moving truck yeah um or carrying things upstairs and we're back in Los Angeles for a week or two. The next thing I'm booked on, I think, is uh, over in Miami, which will be a, a tennis story. So, yeah, when you mentioned uh, you that I shoot a lot of things, this goes from you know, homicides in Mississippi to yeah. rising tennis stars, um, which is fantastic, much more happier yeah. kind of uh, subject topic. And is do you have any like? Um like creative ambitions yourself to sort of take the take more of a leading editorial role like you know is there any documentaries that you that you want to make yourself you know what i mean like because you're on you're obviously on like quite an interesting path as we'll as we'll get into in terms of like how your career began and how you got into this um and the way you've made you way through the industry and that you've created this niche for yourself and you know but just from having spent a couple of days with you it strikes me that you probably got quite I imagine, imagine there's some quite big ambitions in there editorially and in, in terms of storytelling. I, I guess you could phrase it like that as, as big ambitions. Uh, but yeah, I do. There is a couple of stories that I absolutely kind of want to tell um, off my own time and, and dime. Uh, I haven't, I'm not in a, there's a couple of them that are sort of, you know, more developed in my mind than others. There's a couple that are sort of have taken a paper form. There's one or two that's being pitched at the moment. Um, and there's a couple in there that are sort of fun ones, I think, as well, which uh, would be good to absolutely explore it from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, my vision, I guess, as you as you said. And it, it, I, I very much enjoy that kind of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, when it's, uh, I suppose, something that is it's relevant and real and, and people can uh, maybe get a little bit of a, a kick out of it as well. I don't... Everything I've been tending to doing the last couple of years has been very, very serious subject matter. Yeah, it seems um, that way. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 I'm quite a light-hearted person. I'd, I'd like to think. Uh, and there's a, I mean, one idea I can, I can tell you. Uh, oh, actually, I don't know if I should tell you. Well, so tell me anyway. Someone might steal it. Tell me anyway, and then we'll. You can decide if you want it in. All right, let's do it that way. Cut, cut me umming and ahhing just then. Yeah. So one. One story I've I've always sort of had in in the back of my mind, and don't don't judge me, but I'd I'd like no to judgment free zone. This <laughs> well, here we go. I'd like to cancel Christmas. That's a common thing, is it? Yeah, I've got I'm a couple of friends that fucking hate it. But not and just my theory on it for them because I think it's really interesting is that they don't like the fact that it's a social convention that that goes on for a long time. Firstly, but secondly, it requires you to behave in a certain way. Ah, mine sort of goes one step further than that. I would like to 
make a documentary that justifies uh, the the cancelling of Christmas, New Year's, Valentine's, Fourth of July, Halloween. So every single example birthdays, of these these like. What else is there? Easter. Well, there's that more. One's the worst. There's more now. That's the thing. Yeah. There's more. There's there's more reasons to. to there's more days. It's. it's <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of days. I mean, and the some of them are fucking ludicrous as well. Let's be honest. The, the benefit absolutely is the the, the public holidays. The, yeah. the time off that we get. That's great. What I think is is the angle I want to come from, is the the impact on the environment. Of course, everyone has been you know championing climate change yeah. and the ways to reduce that. How much wastage, you know, in my mind, you can't, you know, you can't own an electric car and say you're doing your part for the the environment when at Christmas time you go and cut down a tree or at Halloween you waste pumpkins. Every one of those holidays comes with an absurd amount of wastage and impact on the environment. Yeah. And I think there's a a valid argument in there that could be presented in quite a lighthearted way. Yeah. Because I don't want to... I'd like to offend a couple of people, but for the most part, I'd, I'd like people to get it. Yeah, you'll definitely offend people with that, but it's thought-provoking, isn't it? And I, it, I'd like it to be thought-provoking. I hear enough people have... Me, me and a friend of mine have a bit of a gag. You know, there's so many... There's just so many of these occasions now. Um, and like in the UK, like Halloween just didn't really used to be a thing. Like it, it kind of was a thing, you know? Like mm. it was... Yeah, cool, you know, like... But these days, it's like it's been... It's, we now do it like the Americans do it. You know, yeah. it's like a massive deal. Like, and and I, I look at something like that and I'm like, it must be commercially driven. Like, it can't it can't just be that everybody just spontaneously decided that they were all going to get super into Halloween. Like, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's got to have come from somewhere. Well, it was the same in Australia. We didn't have Halloween either. And then in recent years, the last time I went home, there's, you know, kids running around the street trick-or-treating and it's a thing, just like the Americans. It's a thing. And I find that fascinating, that territory where people just adopt behavior en masse and you, you're like well where did that come from like you really see it with language don't you yeah. like regular listeners will know i've got a thing about the phrase deep dive like you know where the fuck did that come from oh, suddenly everyone in the world is, is started saying the phrase deep dive oh. you know but there's loads of but the reason i find it interesting can is i circle back to you on that one you 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 can i'll ping you about we, it we'll, later. We'll, we'll we'll erect the big idea t- ideas tent and uh, do some blue sky thinking on that one yeah but, it's all about the synergy but exactly so and i i what i find fascinating about it is like where did it come from and why do, why do people say it why do people feel the need to say it and it's because it's it's related i think and my point being that it's just a mass behavioral thing, isn't it? It's like suddenly everyone's doing this thing and I'm interested in why. Like, it's not the point about the fucking word and it's not the point about Halloween. And your idea is obviously, it's not actually about that, is it? It's like, well, why are we doing these things and why do we not stop to sort of actually question it? Yeah, well, bit? I'd like to, I'd like people to take a look at themselves. You know, if we're going to, I mean, Australia's just had quite a, a landmark election um, yeah. that, that was very, very focused on the environment and on climate change. Well, they call it, they're calling it like the first climate change election, aren't they, basically? Yeah, something like that. But if, if that's the way we're going to go, if we're going to save the environment, let's save the environment. Yeah. You, can't, you can't say we're going to save the environment and, you know, still wrap our presents in single-use wrapping paper. Yeah. Um, or even make those presents something that's kind of single-use yeah. covered in plastic. Um, or cut down pine forests to decorate our trees with you yeah. know, the energy that goes into that. I think we've got to keep this in. All right, we'll keep it in. But if anyone <laughs> steals it... Do you, actually, you know what? I've got no hesitation with anyone That's stealing cool. it because everyone I've been, I've been pitching it to, all the producers that I think, yeah, I'm going to 
they're going to be with me on this. They look at me and they're like, mate, there's no chance. That's not getting off the ground. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah, exactly. And that's often the way, isn't it, with those ideas where <laughs> yeah. where they're just, that they're, they're, they're particular to the person that's come up with the idea, basically. It'll be good fun. That's, yeah. It'll be an absolute laugh. Yeah. yeah. I didn't re- realize the background in ski was quite so, because um, you you mentioned you grew up in, it's, it's New South Wales, right? New South Wales, yeah. yeah. And you're, we talked about this a little bit last night, but your grandfather s- uh, founded a ski resort, right? He, yeah, my my grandfather Colmires. He was a he was a farmer in the in the Blowing Valley where I grew up, a little beautiful little region in in um, uh, rural New South Wales. Yeah, uh, and at some point in time, he, t- I think the story goes, I, and I need to double check, but I, I, I'm pretty sure the story goes, he took the engine out of his old Bedford truck, right, and he turned it into a tow rope, right, and I've got a great little photo of him. There's a sign, and he's charging five p for three rides or something on right. this rope tow at a place called Kyandra, which was an old, famous, old, famous gold field. Yeah, um, and after the, the gold rush kind of left, there was a there was a few sort of residences and residences and, and houses left behind and huts um, in the sort of the I guess the lower Alpine area of the of the Australian Snowy Mountains, which right. is a beautiful part of the country. Yeah, and he, I think, you know, he always sort of had this vision. Well, I guess he he saw that it worked here at Kyandra, and then he, he he moved it to where the resort currently is, which is a place. It was called Mount Selwyn when I grew up there, and I went up by the time I was born. Our whole family was living up there and we, we lived up there in the winter. Right. And I um, went to school at a place called Cabramurra, which is Australia's highest uh, settlement. Yeah. And I, as far as I know, it's the only day so far, the, sorry, it's the only school in Australia to have ever had a snow day. Right. Where there's obviously too much snow. Yeah. You can't get to school. That's right? brilliant. That's a thing in the UK, right? Uh, it's definitely it, it, in Well, it used to be. It used to be when we then what when, happened? When Climate we had, change. Well, we didn't. Have, we don't have snow anymore. We don't have snow anymore. There you go. Yeah. I yeah. mean, when I was a kid, it used That's to. That's Christmas's fault. It, exactly. Yeah. It, it used to happen every year, um, and I can only remember it snowing in the UK like maybe twice in the last ten years. Like, in, in, I'm talking about the south of England because we do have ski resorts in Scotland. Sorry, Scottish listeners, you've got great ski resorts and you do get snow. I mean, like, oh, that was a suck up, wasn't it? In the well, I'll just get shit for it. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, uh, like where I live in Brighton. You know, I've lived there for 20, 23 years. And I can remember it snowing like twice to the point where they would shut the schools yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Right. So this is, it, it's not what you think of when you think of uh, New South Wales, is it? M- for most people. It, it's not what you think of when you think of Australia, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, even now, you know, running around America, they're sort of surprised that I can ski when I, when I, turns out I can ski. Yeah. And they said, where did, where did you learn to do that? And I say Australia. And the, the look on their face is pure shock. Oh, I, didn't know there was snow in Australia. You have mountains. Exactly. There. It's yeah. a big fucking place. Um, hills, big hills. Yeah. We've got big hills. We've actually no, that's not fair. We do have some mountains and some very challenging terrain. It's it's usually in the backcountry, and we've got to work a bit and tour to get to it, which yeah. is is great. It was something I discovered, you know, a little bit later in life. But yeah, yeah, growing up with a actual ski resort as a literal backyard. Yeah, it's a very unique upbringing. Um, and it was very fortunate to have that. Um, when you know ninety percent of the population lives around the coastline and grows up in the in the water, yeah, uh, yeah, I was learning to I learned to ski at a very young age, and um, I ended up competing, and I, I was based in Austria for a couple of years and training with um, with the the B team over there for a little bit, and oh, right. sort of so doing were, like the Junior World Cups. So you proper chased it. Yeah, I, I I did as much as you kind of can when 
you're Australian. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a very expensive sport, but I was very lucky. Australia had a very, I guess, rudimentary uh, winter sports program where, yeah. you know, they'd selected a couple of talented kids and, and funded their, you know, training and progression um, with the hopes that they one day sort of make it to the Olympics. Um, I wasn't one of those kids. I, I sort of went as far as I could and then the, the, the scholarships and the grants ran out and I realized I couldn't really afford to ski anymore. But uh, I was in my late teens and, of course, I discovered an absolute passion for it and it was a part of my life and I had to find other ways to afford to do this, this you know, unaffordable sport. Um, and I ended up sort of transitioning into, uh, I guess, park skiing. Park skiing. Right. Um, so slope style and big air and half pipe, which was in its very early stages uh, of progression back in those days. You know, skiers had only just started going into the half pipe. So what are we talking like two thousand? I guess it would have been well, yeah, it would have been around two thousand. I remember the ninety nine X Games when I think like Candide came out with his red hair. Uh, they had the, the snowblading, the cannon ski boards. That yeah. was sort of an event. It was yeah, yeah. It was going in a, a new direction. You know, snowboarders invented the half pipe. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's like post those salmon skis, isn't it? That came out in yeah, the ten eighty in the in the mid nineties, right? Yeah. And, um, and that sort of changed the game a bit, didn't it? Like it, big, big sidecar and all that. It yeah. really changed the game, and it, ga- yeah. it gave the sport a second wind. Absolutely, because yeah. it was sort of it was which big- is a snowboarder, I must say, was was treated with some glee, given yeah. given the shit that snowboarders had got off the ski industry for years, and then suddenly, you know, it kind of everyone was like, "Well, they're just copying us now." And uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, we take it as a compliment. The, the skiers copied it because it was fucking cool. Yeah, and it's fun. Yeah. yeah, it was really fun. Like I, I, I snowboard every now and again as well. Yeah, and it's it, yeah, they're both as fun as each other. It's pretty yeah. hard to not have fun on the snow. You could be tobogganing and you're still going to have a good time, no matter yeah, what I mean, you're starting I, down on. I was doing a season in Chamonix in probably 2001, maybe, and you know, like you do on those, as you, as you'll know, like you just live with skiers and snowboarders. Like everyone rides together. It's like it's yeah. that's just the deal, isn't it? And I remember like all all my friends you know starting to as these new skis came in and became, all the other brands started coming up with similar designs and they were all just like it's just changed the game it's just it's just so fun you know it, it did it changed the game it, it sort of re it reshaped winter sports it gave you know resorts uh new leases on life and new you know income streams a new audience um which at the end of the day that's the you know that's what is needed to to support winter sports yeah um is people who you know take it up for the first time and go on family uh, annual family holidays um and it, it, it sort of it, it gave me uh, another way to continue to ski as well um i i had a actually had a gymnastics background as well i was on right. a state team in australia for gymnastics so i could it was second nature to me to go upside down yeah so when you I stopped racing to, you knew you know where you are in the air yeah i, I yeah. ended up going upside down on skis a couple of times and, you know, getting a couple of tricks dialed. And right. before long, I had a couple of sponsors and, and that sort of sort of funded my my sport for the next couple of years. And yeah. it was great. It sort of, you know, extended. It didn't do anything, you know, um, amazingly uh, beneficial for the world, but I had a fun couple of years. Yeah. We, I used to run a snowboard, Mike, and the news pages were called Thieves and Rich Kids. Yes. Yeah. the, the You've either got to be rich or you've got to blag it. I think, I think I blagged it. I think yeah. I was the thief. I certainly blagged it. Because uh, I, I, yeah, I, I worked up there when I, I, I invented 
an event in Australia as well at yeah. one point when I, when my kind of my, my new uh, park competitive career, I guess, was came to an end. Everyone started to learn doubles. Actually, you Nelson, who, you know, yeah. is one of the founding names of, of DB, he came out to Australia and learnt the, the Kanga flip and took that to the competition scene. And uh, I, I saw that. I saw that season over in the US. I'm like, oh, the next thing is going to be doubles. And I was... You're a bit like... Well, I, was, I was like, oh. I'm not. I'm too old for this. I'm not, I'm not going to learn Uh-oh. that. I've got no chance. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, the next generation of like younger Australian kids were coming up. And, you know, Chris Booth as well, who's yeah. another name that's doing wonders here at DB. And he was, he was sort of this like young kid from, from Cronulla who was, you know, skiing laps around everyone else in the, in the park. And I was like, oh, I'm not... I can't, I can't keep up. So yeah, yeah so I, I, I still really love to do it. I loved hitting big jumps. And then um, I kind of convinced one of the resorts, Threadbow and uh, Charles Beckinsale, who's a renowned um, park builder, yeah. uh, whose name's known all around the world and behind, you know, a lot of the big uh, comps and jumps. Is he fields. the guy that quite often designs like the, is he involved with like doing the Olympic courses maybe? I'm sure he is at some stage. I I mean, don't quote me on this. The one, the the park in Sasfay, the after season one that Sage was talking about it. Yeah. He, he's done it a couple of times. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Um, he got him in. Well, what I, what I really liked about that story when, when we were talking about it yesterday was I like the fact you were like, well, I just wanted to hit a proper jump, you know? So I sort of found a way of, 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 getting someone to build it yeah well and, I, I, and dressed it up in a comp but the goal was really so you all could ride it essentially it was a it was a happy accident i was i w- i'd been doing a couple of you know my my off seasons over in mammoth back when um june mountain uh, and reuben was the he was the park builder at june yeah he was also at threadbow as well so you had these massive jumps in june that just got me kind of hooked and i was just addicted to the airtime and it's an amazing feeling and i still do it whenever i can you know not that big probably these days um but anyway these two guys so reuben and charles were you know both flicking around the australian mountains and as was i and a few other guys and i'm like well let's why aren't we building you know big jumps the australian resorts have always been a few years behind yeah progression well, when it comes to the cost money doesn't it? it it costs time and money you know yeah. those cats there's expensive expensive to run. The, the resort yeah. needs to um dedicate uh resources to it and it's you know we've got a limited amount of snow well, as it, it, ta- is. it takes somebody this is why i'm interested in it because it take that's how it happens isn't it you know somebody comes along and goes like well we could probably do it this way and finds an angle yeah you know, like well, for a place like that to do it which is why i think it's it's rad basically because that's where your level gets raised, isn't it? Essentially. Yeah. And I, well, I guess I, I found an angle. Yeah. Because I sort of, yeah, I said to, I, I pitched it to the resort I was working at, Perisher, which is now a Vale resort. Uh, and they said no. I was actually working at the time as the cameraman. And then I, I took it over to Threadbow and the, the marketing manager over there, Rich Phillips, uh, who's a lovely guy and forward thinking and like shared my vision once I told it to him. And he said, yep, what do you need? Here's, you know, Charles. We'll give you Charles in a, three weeks in a cat. And we went up to where Threadbow used to build their their big half pipe, yeah, um, which is a sort of a this natural bowl that cops all the the snowfall and it just kind of sits there all season. It's got quite a deep base, so there's lots to farm and play with. Yeah, and he built this sort of monster kicker. This was in 2009, was the first one, and the idea was I just invited all the guys that I knew, a couple of internationals, mostly Australians, skiers and snowboarders, and we just sessioned this jump. And I hit it as well, but then myself and three other guys filmed it. We filmed it, you know, in a very professional way that kind of suited television. 
um, because that was sort of the end goal. I was working at one of the television networks in Australia and I thought, look, I can kind of, you know, merge my two worlds here. And if I film this, yeah, because it's, it's spectacular, big air. And, you know, this was back before it was in the Olympics. It was still a rock star event. Um, and there was just a lot of hucking going on and we were filming it with sort of high speed cameras, which hadn't really been done before because it's hard to get access to that type of camera kit. Now yeah. it's, it's much easier. Also need so an angle. We, yeah. So the, the angle was we, we filmed it in a, in a, in a gratuitously spectacular way, lots of slow-mo, yeah. lots of big airs. And we kind of wrapped that up and put it online. We put it on, on television in, in Australia. Um, we had sort of ESPN pick it up and the, the idea was you, you vote for the winner online. So it's not about, it, it was the idea of the competition was not how many people you can get to the resort to watch it live. It was how many people you could get online. So all the, the audience came later and online. So then of course, Threadbo, the resort was getting all these viewers online. Uh, so it didn't matter who was there at the resort or not. We still ended up with a bit of a crowd there, but we ended up with sort of the numbers were hundreds of thousands and, you know, every, all the athletes were then going off going, Hey, vote for me. And yeah, it was, it was fun. It was a yeah, fun yeah. event. There was, it was a bit of, it wasn't a huge amount of prize money, but it just worked that first year it worked. Yeah. It was, I don't know. It was one of the first things I'd done that had worked. Right. And it, and it was just purely born out of a passion and it was me wanting an excuse to hit a jump and yeah. something to do. And then uh, I, after that, I, I got Toyota on as a sponsor and a few other amazing sponsors gopro in later years red bull for a little bit um salomon were amazing supporters uh and it just grew from there and we we ran it for nine years i think in total wow. and every year after year it got bigger and bigger a couple of years we you know the names we had out was you know they're all the big names in the olympics now sage Kotzenberg, of course, who's who's here this week. He was telling me that he he remembers coming out and hitting it in 2013. Oh, really? Um, that's, yeah, that's we, funny. Tour Gear was a he yeah. rode one year. All the Australian guys, Yoon um, Olsen came and played on it one year, and then all the regulars in the comp scene. You know, Elias Ambule, Bobby Brown, uh, all three. Sorry, all four of the Wells brothers at yeah. one point from yeah, yeah. across from New Zealand. Um, uh, so you make you, you did yeah. you know if you build it they will come. It was literally if you if you build it they will come. And yeah. For for lack of another pun, it snowballed after that first <laughs> year as well. It just got bigger and bigger, and it was it was an absolute riot. But then it sort of it changed a little bit as well. I mean, I I moved on to other things, but I think once big air snowboarding uh, ended up in the uh, sorry skiing and snowboarding ended up in the Olympics, it changed the f big air was always that rock star event yeah in both disciplines where you know it was just it was x games uh it, it didn't come with all the the trimmings that you now get because it's an olympic sport you know each one of those athletes now also come it's not just them rocking up and wanting to have fun it's they're they're arriving as part of a national team with coaches with physios and all of a sudden you have to for a little place like, you know, Threadbow um, and us, we were putting up all the athletes, which is fine, but you can't also put up, everyone's got an entourage of, you know, four or five. It just becomes a bit untenable. So, yeah, yeah, I let that one go and moved on to other projects. I yeah. moved to the US. Right. But you were, you said you were filming though. So this is, so I'm interested in like when the transition to what you do now happened. So you, you, because you, a lot of, a lot of people that are super into skiing and snowboarding got so many friends who are filmers because they used to be really good riders mm. and it's just really you know they know it inside out they they can they can do it in a sympathetic way you know obvious stuff like they um and it's it's a route isn't it you know people people do it out of necessity and then it becomes their passion so is that kind of the, the story for you then like skiing 
was what sparked the filming? No, actually, not really. It was sort of the other way round. I mean, it, it was two separate things in the beginning for me. And I, I was, um, I, I was skiing when I wasn't filming. So when I was filming, and actually, it was it was very rarely that it was on snow. I wasn't really a a, a ski or snowboard filmer per se. That only really started with the event, and that's when I started filming because it was sort of my project and and my baby, and and that was another excuse to to get hold of these cameras as well. Because back then, having a camera set up was far more expensive than it is today. You know, yeah, they, you, Reds are, or even a DSLR, you know, whatever level of budget you've got, you know, there's something there for you that's accessible. Yeah. Back then, it wasn't the case, so I needed an excuse to end up with these cameras to be able to film. So, how I ended up, I guess transitioning into the the actual television world was uh i'd been studying completely separate from skiing i'd been studying film and television production in uh, a university in regional new south wales a place called wagga wagga which is also only a couple of hours from the from the resorts and on one of the semester during the semester holidays i would go back up into the mountains and i'd ski as an athlete in front of the camera just for a free season pass and one day the the cameraman who was a you know very revered australian cameraman he got hit by a, uh, i think it was a snowboarder but that's let's not hold it against him. them gotta watch him uh yeah and he he did a bit of damage and was out for the rest of the season and they'd sort of said where are we going to find it someone who can ski and film at the same time and i i lied and said yes they gave me the job and i thought look i'm going to get far more experience doing this and learning on the job it also helped that that resort or the production I was working for was also owned by the same big media mogul who owned a big television network. Right. So I thought, look, I'm going to be able to weasel my way, maybe, hopefully. That was the, the plan. We talked about plans yesterday. That was the, the closest thing I had to a plan yeah. um, in getting into the industry. Uh, short of finishing my university degree and then fighting, you know, 30 other kids that were far more talented than I was, you know, at an internship. One of Australia's only got a couple of placements and sure. you know you if you get one of those internships you start at the bottom and you got to work your way up so yeah. i bluffed my way in and dropped out of university which was a big gamble and my mother still um holds that against me to this day really being, being a, an educator That's a teacher so herself fun. it's so funny that isn't it it is they, that generation well, not to my mom but that definitely that, but that generation it was it was important wasn't it the, the sending your kids to uni it was important and it still is important but it should also be valued that there's other ways to get there. Yeah, I agree. No matter what you're doing. Um, there's this notion of, you know, you go to university or you go to, you know, some whatever the tertiary education system is and you're taught by a lecturer who kind of teaches you on the subject. But, I mean, they're not really doing it themselves. They, no. they know it in theory. I mean, th- this this isn't a th- this isn't a, a science. What I'm saying, I don't know how precise this is, but sure, well, yeah, m- my experience is: look, if you want if you want to learn something, you're going to learn at best either doing it or doing it with, ideally, doing it with someone who's doing it and has been doing it for years and is very good at it. Yeah, and that's the best education you're going to get, like like apprenticeships, I suppose. You know, in 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 tradecraft no matter what your trade is, you're going to, I think you're going to learn far more. And that was my experience. I learned far more, you know, the next couple of months actually using a camera in all these horrible conditions and under, you know, lighting um, restraints 
and I, I learned far more doing that than I had in the last couple of years of, of university in kind of pretend, you know, scenarios. Yeah, I think this this should, well, these days it appears there's a bit more of a balance, but I think there should be more, you know, onus put on the fact that there's no perfect path and university is useful to a degree. And I said, I mean, I went to university and I got, I look back now and I think, what a, what a waste, that, that was just wasted on me really. You know, I was 18 yeah. and, and basically spent the whole time stoned, didn't go to hardly any lectures, you know, and it does treat you, it does teach you to marshal your thoughts in a particular way and to present your, present your thoughts in a particular way. And there's obviously value to that. Like, I think that is quite a rigorous, you know, th- th- there's some rigor in the way that you get taught to do that. Um, I, but, I, th- I think you nailed it when you said, you know, there's no perfect path. Yeah. and But I think it, it encourages you to think like you, like you just described that that path is, is the path. And I think in my case, and the reason I kind of latched onto your mum, the comment about your mum is because my mum was the same. Like it was really important for her that her kids went to university. She's like working class, didn't have the opportunity herself. And from when we were really young, that was just me and my sister. That was just like kind of a, that was the family thing really. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I left university and a bit bit like what you're saying, I was sort of thinking like, what the fuck am I going to do here then? And I got offered a job at a newspaper in, in, um, in the city, Sheffield in, in the UK. And turned it down because I had. That's where the dry slope is, isn't it? Sorry. Well, it burned down, unfortunately. Oh, did it? Yeah. Um, James Woodsy's hometown. Exactly. And Paddy, Paddy Graham, do yep. you know Paddy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'd had one article published in a snowboard magazine at that point. And so I, I turned the job down because a friend of mine was like, no, no, we can, we can get jobs at the magazine and like, well, you know, we should do that. That's what we should do. And my mum was she still i mean nowadays obviously she's like well you were right but at the time she was mortified she was like what the, what are you doing you know mm. you should you should take that job and i think in my case that was so kind of programmed into me that way of thinking it took me a long time to to unlearn it really you know and i was just looking at, i was lucky that i had friends that weren't programmed that way and that were quite they were a bit more independent of thought than, than I was at the time so that so like that friend I'm talking about you know like I say he was a bit like no we don't have to do that we could do this I was mm. like oh okay you know and that's kind of what you need isn't it you know you need these alternative paths shown to you really and I just kind of feel like the onus on on one as being better than another is a bit bit inhibiting isn't it I'm not sure it's that helpful for people really it, it is inhibiting and because everyone is different you know the world is it's it's getting smaller I mean, it's a big place, but it's getting smaller, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, everyone is very different. And the, I mean, to go one step further than there is no perfect path, you know, we're finding out how different humans really are from each other. And that becomes, you know, really apparent when you travel, whether it's for snow sports or for, you know, cinematography or or whatever, holidaying even, you know, all there's all these like personalities and, and human traits and human conditions that and they exist and they're not necessarily designed for the paths in air quotes that have been set out as you know this is how you achieve in life um you know it's it's, it's a i guess it's you know, speaking from a really from a place of privilege that you can even so many people don't even have access to yeah, these paths course. in the first place yeah of course and it's it's yeah it, it's it's interesting to i guess break it down a little bit and kind of discover that look there's there's i mean there's so many ways to skin a cat and yeah 
I think I'd, someone else said this, but just because things are the way they are, it doesn't mean that's the way it should be. Yeah. And I think that's a good mindset to have because if you can go, look, I, I do want to get from A to B, but not necessarily on the way that has been set out before me or the way that, you know, everyone else is doing it. And if you can, if you can have that mindset and if you can apply it, it can be a very powerful thing. But it seems like there's quite a lot of bravery in the choices that you've made though. Like from, from what little I know about the way you've navigated these paths, you know, like having the confidence to quit your course and take that opportunity and blag it, having the confidence to sort of talk your way, to persuade a ski resort, to build a jump and to, to corral all those people together to do that. Even now with the choices that you make. So where, where do you think that came from? Because like I said, I don't think, I think, I don't think that's common to everybody. Like I think most people have to learn that. Feels a bit like you almost had that in you from quite an early age, maybe. Maybe, maybe it's some kind of subconscious rebel streak that I I didn't know I had. But I think, well, I mean, I can speak to each of those specific moments. I mean, quitting the 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 university course was. I mean, I, I was young and that was a, a gamble, and everyone told me not to do it, and uh, you know, it just kind of felt like the right thing to do um well I was, you know what it was i was really enjoying it I, I was having a medium amount of fun at university you know campus life and all that uh but i was having a shit ton of fun on snow and filming and you know it was a challenge yeah. i think the challenge is a is a good a challenge combined with a bit of fun you know i think i remember as well before then um uh when i made the decision to quit uh, being a competitive gymnast and to go down the path of competitive skiing. And it was literally, I, I was at Mount Selwyn, the ski resort I grew up at with my cousin who's you know similar in age and it was a powder day, which is rare in Australia. And we were hooking it through the trees on a run called Galar's Gully, which you can't get more Australian than that. <laughs> and I was, I was supposed Cockabura to get Canyon. on... Yeah, I, I was... <laughs> I remember it very clearly. I was, you know, supposed to get on the bus down to Melbourne to um to the Nationals right. uh, for gymnastics. And I was just like, look, in my mind, you know, I was quite young, but I'm like, I think that was one of the first times I thought, you know, I have to, I've got a decision here to make. I've got a fork in the road. It's, yeah. it's go down, you know, get on the bus, drive five hours to Melbourne and then get absolutely punished physically because that's what gymnastics basically is. Yeah. Uh, or I could stay here and blast through the trees and get face shots yeah um and i i chose the latter and you know i think i i went home that day and you know mum was like well obviously you didn't get on the bus i guess you know you've chosen skiing right um did you recognize it as at that age did you recognize it as that you know you've described it as like oh it's a fork in the road i need to make a call yeah, I, I did, I think. Um, in hindsight, it, it's it's extremely clear. But even at the time, you know, I, it, was, it was a choice between you yeah. know, d- taking taking one road or, or taking the other. Because I knew, the, I always knew actually, because the competition season, I got to quite a, a, I don't know, a relatively high level for that age, which yeah. is a young age, you know, um, a, a developmental age. I, got, I was at a relatively high level in both sports. And the competition season for both was in the Australian winter. So I kind of knew, you know, this is going to start to clash. The more sort of higher up I got in both sports, the more demanding each one got. Right. And I'm like, eventually I'm going to have to make a choice here. And mate, the powder day sold it for me and, you know, find me someone who, you know, chooses not to take yeah. the powder day. <laughs> they are pretty good. I've not had one for a while. They're, they're, I've not they, had a prop one for a while. They are pretty good. And then yeah. I think that probably um, spurred me on to later in life, you know, when I when I did 
um, uh, quit university and, and take the job. And then, and then a few years after that, I, I quit the job and went freelance. And I remember how that happened as well. It was a, I was on a trip in a, in Alaska. I was sort of, I'd been umming and ahhing about the job or at this staff job. It was an amazing job and it, it showed me, uh, that I, that television was a fantastic career. I wasn't right. a cameraman actually. I was a satellite technician, which we chatted about yesterday. Um, which, which was very different, but also the same. You're kind of out in the field and, you know, you, you react to breaking news events yeah. um, or, or world situations around the planet and the network deploys you there with a whole lot of satellite gear and you basically, it's your job to get there first and, you know, be one of the, the, the first people to get live pictures out to show the world what's going on. Um, and that took me to a lot of places. That was, was sort of my first real travel outside of skiing you know traveling to places that didn't have mountains which is pretty much exclusively what i'd done before then and i was on a trip in alaska uh with a couple of mates uh chris booth being one of them who's who's dragged me to some amazing places around the world as well and just spending 30 days on a glacier with no one else around apart from these other guys waking up every morning to this unimaginable white expanse seeing you know nothing for miles apart from snow and rock and sky no connection to the outside world everything was self-powered and self-propelled and anything we wanted to ski we had to put in the effort and we had to earn our turns and, and climb um and just doing that for sort of you know 30 days just that the the i don't know what it was i guess the isolation maybe the camaraderie but it just recalibrated my perspective on the world a little bit i thought you know there's i think i need to be doing more I, w- I was still young i would like to be doing more yeah um so let's have a crack at being a, a freelancer i'd always wanted to shoot i'd always been shooting that whole time you know that those years that w- was when i'd started the the one hit wonder which was the australian event yeah and i thought well this is, this is a great time you know, i'm going this trip has given me confidence as a person uh, so I, th- I think I, I put in my notice as soon as I got back to Australia and made a pretty big life decision and it, it, it worked out. Yeah. Uh, I was, I, I feel like I was lucky that it did work out. Maybe it, it doesn't for everyone. Um, but I, I guess it, the, the trip gave me the confidence that I was skiing things that I were technically, you know, probably beyond my scope and I was, I was learning how to navigate that. And that I guess gave me confidence in my professional career as a, a budding cinematographer. I wasn't right. accomplished by any means as a cinematographer in, in those days. Is that when you sell Jam Media then? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Generation Media is sort of the, the company name that I started and went by. Yeah, but you, ca- you, I, you, I started pack- you went packaged by it and, and you kind of... Because obviously with, with One Hit Wonder, you've, you've learned how to sell yourself in a, in a really handy way there, haven't you? You know, that, 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 that sort of thing teaches you you know it's marketing it's promo it's sales it's everything isn't it you yeah know? And, it's, and those things are all in common with the freelance life i mean you that i was said this quite recently on one of these but there's a lot of admin involved in in, in being a freelancer you know it's not just the work is it that like sales is is a massive part of it and you need you need a package you need a way of talking about yourself essentially don't you you're absolutely spot on um and that's what doesn't get talked about enough and you you know everyone's got an instagram my one's lacking these days i think i looked someone one of the creative guys here asked me oh what's what's the handle and 
they were shocked when I hadn't posted anything since, since January. How about this lot were? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely yeah. livid they were. They couldn't believe I didn't have a TikTok account the other day. Oh, I was yeah, like, I'm, I'm 46, lads. Of course yeah, I don't have no, a fucking I, TikTok account. I don't have time to have another one, so yeah. I've, I've stayed away from that. I, I got rid of Facebook years ago. Yeah, me too. I just, I, I, yeah, I'm still on Instagram because I actually quite enjoy it. But yeah, I got rid of all of them. You know, I just time suck. And it was also just making me feel a bit shit, you know, like going on Facebook. I was just, I was just looking at it. I was just like, it's just like, I can feel like my blood pressure rising. What the yeah. fuck am I even doing? You know? That's the important thing. It doesn't add anything positive to your life, really, when you think that. No, not at all. Well, it weaponizes the things that you don't like. So um, if it's not adding anything positive, what's no. the point of having it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, everyone's got social media, though, despite it not adding anything positive and all they see is you know all the oh you're on a shoot in another day at the office oh in the mountains <laughs> or in the, the tropical paradise or few people post somewhere. about their tax returns very few people <laughs> post about you know how to do invoices yeah exactly um, and, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm or the pitch that you didn't win I'm, or yeah. or when someone told you your idea was shit yeah yeah oh, i get like shut down all the time or yeah. i might pitch something and it'll get you know uh commissioned off to to someone else because they you know they like the idea but they prefer someone else's work that's yeah. happened a couple of times and it's 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 an absolutely a part of it you know you, you can't key part of it i would say yeah you, you can't kind of you know just be convinced that that whoever's instagram you're looking at is a reflection of them or their work because it's it's absolutely not and oh the amount of times i've i've you know lost the pictures have gone nowhere or you know something i've shot hasn't gone to where or it's you know hit the whole story's hit the cutting room floor yeah um or, or you get or you get the feedback where they're like mm, bit shit this you know which still happens like all the time well yeah. not you know obviously not that bluntly but it's yeah, just that's it, pretty rude it's, <laughs> yeah I, I did it's been a while since someone's come out with that i have had that though i i i, I, had, I mean i remember pitching um a dance music magazine this is fucking how long ago this was um a story and the guy basically replied going, if only your pitch was be- was as well written as your email um, or something like that. It's something really Ooh, snide. You not know? my tempo. Yeah. And I was a bit like, <laughs> fucking hell, all right, mate. Um, but it's all part of the game, like we're saying, isn't it? Well, that, that that was the hard thing, the hardest thing, I think, for me to learn was the, the business side of it. Yeah. And how to have a business on your own and you know, be it like cause being a freelancer is you, you're a business and yeah. you have to do your tax returns as such. Yeah. Got, um, got to do that got to do that stuff yeah and it's it's as that, tedious that, as it is that's something they didn't teach us you know the maybe they taught at the very end of university the you know in the months that i that i didn't complete but certainly in the the few months or the you know the half course that i had done there was nothing about you know this is how you you you, you do the business side of things or yeah. how you talk to people or how you pitch things or how you you know i guess work with with talent on set and direct people it's, it's very much a, a you know, it's a creative industry and it's mostly full of introverts, but you've got to be a people person as yeah, well. Yeah, you do. It's very, it's very important. And yeah, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The admin isn't, isn't, we should glamorize admin. I don't know how to. <laughs> That's your next documentary idea. <laughs> glamorizing admin. <laughs> glamorizing admin.com. Yeah. No, it takes me a full day to do my invoices. And yeah. It's like, it's a, I think I have a day off and my, my, um, I'm still trying to get paid from something that I did like you know last year, and it's it's a joke. Oh yeah, and it, and it, and I, and now I'm like, and this is I'm not I, don't, I can't believe I'm actually saying this because this is so boring, but um, <laughs> but it is a thing, isn't it? And it just is it's it's as part of it, like you say. Yeah, the, here but, we are in Hossegore, like blah blah blah, yeah, like you know. This I think this is the minority. I spend the 
the thing that I do most in a year is stand in line at TSA and get Wheel, wheeling your, your ten cases around. Yeah, and get questioned <laughs> about about batteries. Yeah, and then and then get patted down when I forget to take my belt off, which is every time. Uh, yeah, but that's the that's pretty much my life. I'm I'm more a pack horse than a cinematographer. I think. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I asked the question is because it looks from the outside that you are you are good at it. You know, that you are good at sort of packaging yourself and 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 telling your own stories. I mean, I mean, you know, that's your, that's your game in it, telling stories. So it does make sense that you that you've got your own story pretty dialed. But yeah, but you can't you can't be on it all the time. You can't look like you're winning at life all the time or well sorry i'm more mean in terms look like that i'm more mean in terms of winning the work though you know like yeah like in terms of the actual um getting the jobs yep having the network yep you know like getting the contacts meeting the people doing doing that part of the work it feels like you, you you're pretty accomplished at that from what i can see yeah i am i i i think i i the last few years i've been doing uh very consistent work uh, which I think I'm very fortunate to have had that. Um, it could also be a reflection on the industry. It's very hot at the moment. There's there's a lot of demand in the US. I think I've landed in the US at the right time or in this this part of the world anyway because I don't shoot exclusively in the US. Um, but it, it, there's a lot of demand for people like Australians and Brits and Canadians who can, you know, in our line of work, they can shoot and edit and sound and, you know, self-produce a little bit as well. They can one-man band, whereas... Americans themselves, they they've got unions and they they just not they probably can, but they're not allowed to work like that. Typically, you have to right. if you want to shoot something in America, you've got to hire a cameraman, then you've got to hire a sounder, then an editor will be another person, and it all, it really adds up. And if you're right. a, you know a, a struggling foreign, not a struggling, but if you're a foreign network that just doesn't have the budgets that's comparable to the U.S. market, then you're not going to be able to afford it. So you you look to um, guys like myself that can get it done for you yeah um, and done well and you know there's still a high standard I, I was very lucky to learn from some of the australian guys that i learned from um you know i was looking over the you know these news cameramen um these these guys that are so accomplished for years before i became one myself yeah and australia has a very high standard of 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 camera work for seemingly uh you know, seemingly mundane stories. In the US, you know, if you turn on the news, it, it looks like kind of anyone shot it. Um, not all the time. There's there's absolutely some outstanding work out there. But I think Australia has a far more consistently high, you know, the network I worked at had a chief cameraman who was, he was, he was fantastic at his job. And, you know, he was very diligent, had a very high standard. And he, he pushed he pushed his whole department to, you know, kind of light stuff and 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 compose stuff so it just looked better than the the competing networks right and that was sort of that mentality was drilled into me you know there's things that i've seen go to air in the us or on, on other networks that uh myself and most other australians in in the business would deem to be you know unacceptable for really? broadcast right okay so yeah i think the doing things at a high standard is um when when you can obviously you know it can yeah. be limiting if you're under pressures and deadlines and there's I don't know stuff going off around you you could be in a riot and you can't control it all the time but still I think having that that baseline of of work to be you know as high as it possibly can that kind of comes from your formative years and who taught you and yeah. how you were taught and so taking that into the US market has has um, I guess anyone it's who can, who can do out. that it's yeah. it's gonna you're gonna being relatively high demand yeah i mean i really like the point you made yesterday as well where you said 
talks about the importance of just asking for help as well when you try to establish yourself and you you know and you, I think when we were emailing back and forth about a few things one of the things you said was um, you, you you still do it you know you take any opportunity to pick somebody's brains and Absolutely. just ask and it's really true that isn't it because I think you just assume that people are going to say no but in my experience it's the same as yours more often than not people say yeah because they're just a bit like yeah why not you know especially if it's done done in, in a sort of amenable way yeah well i mean to beginning anyone that's sort of doing it professionally knows that it's hard to get there yeah it's hard to learn in the first place so i think i've just knowing that you know if someone eager comes along and wants to you know that's asking you you know they've 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 gone out on a limb to ask you for some knowledge or some for some advice you know i'd i've never really met anyone more experienced than me that's not willing to impart some of their wisdom onto you you're not going to lose anything by doing so at the very least you're just gonna be known as a nice guy for giving someone the time so I've yeah I've been very lucky that whenever I've asked you know someone's always helped and I, I'd still do it um, as, as much as I can you know I'm always seeing you know, we go back to Instagram you know another cameraman or cinematographer will upload something and um, could be something as simple as an interview you know just like a sit down lit interview which is sort of our bread and butter yeah um you know they're very it's a very common thing to shoot and you know the 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 lighting will just be stunning in in my view in my eyes and i'll you know half the time you know reach out and go hey like what what kitty are you using yeah. like you know what have you used to light that and yeah they'll be they'll you know you'll get a reply and and people do that with me as well and yeah you sort of share how you're doing it because it's at the end of the day, it is a creative industry. You know, it's a creative thing that you're doing. There's a lot of technology and, uh, and innovation involved in it. Um, and it can get very, very technical. And uh, there's, there can be maths involved if you want to go that far. But at the end of the day, I think you've, you've got a frame, um, whether it's photography or cinematography, and you're, you're painting with light. You've got, you know, so many vertical pixels by so many horizontal pixels. And what you do with each one of those pixels is kind of up to you. Uh, and no one knows it all. No one knows the right way of doing it. You can put, you know, myself and three of my colleagues in a room and ask us all, you know, we could give us the exact same camera, exact same kit um, and say, right, you know, you're sitting in front of me, you know, light him, you know, set up it, do an interview setup. And the, the four of us will, it'll be, you know, Apples and oranges, yeah. the the final result. We'll all come up with something different, and that's the that's the creativity. Yeah, there's no kind of you know right and wrong way to do it. Yeah, they'll probably all look fantastic. I mean, I've been I've been really enjoying hanging out with you know some some of the lads who were here with this week, who were really young and really clever and really motivated and all doing interesting stuff. You know, goes either way, doesn't it? It's not just people that you can learn from that are more experienced it's people that have no, got I, a fresh approach as I well ask you know? anyone yeah as like that creativity it, you know it's not bound by age so no. ask the younger guys how they're doing something and half the time you know they've taken a bit of they've been you know more innovative because maybe they haven't been able to afford the kind of kit that you know the older guys are using so they're they're sort of you know jimmy rigging um other bits of kit to get a better result and you know they'll they'll find ways to you know, to repurpose existing equipment or, or cheaper equipment to kind of, you know, to to get a result that's comparable to, you know, productions that have millions of dollars worth of budget attached to them. Yeah, well, like you say, that's that is that is literally creativity, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 endless and it's it's always evolving. And even in the news game now as well, you know, the you, news 
television looks very different to what it did, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago. And that's to do with, you know, um, the innovation in the cameras and the sensor sizes and the, they've all, the the form factors have changed and you can, it's easier to put them on gimbals or sliders now. So, you know, you can, you can do that sometimes. And that of course, you know, is sort of the, the, the base level. And then you kind of get up into the documentary world and which is sort of where I, uh, sit most of the time yeah. somewhere between documentary and commercial um, the budgets are a little bit bigger and the shoots are a bit longer and um, we get a few more luxuries and a few more toys to play with um, but yeah you can even like going all the way back to like a someone who's shooting skiing or snowboarding um, you know actually I mean those guys end up being pretty resilient when they get to the commercial world if they choose to go that route because yeah. typically they're schlepping all this kit you know i mean you haven't really gone on a shoot unless you've until you've you know schlepped your entire kit up the side of a mountain (laughs) boot packing um it's getting wet it's cold your fingers are numb yeah um you know the riders the riders are being a diva you've been up up at four (laughs) yeah the good light it's it's a great stomping ground so you know when you get to the the next stage if you choose to go into the commercial world and all of a sudden there's a there's a craft services truck (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's catering yeah there's catering and you're like well this is bloody easy isn't it yeah yeah all right final question then um on this theme and we did talk about this last night but i'll ask you again um what what's the advice for for people looking for a way in great question that yeah it's a favorite (laughs) (laughs) my my advice is is you've got to yeah don't be afraid to ask ask questions um find someone whose work you enjoy or you admire or you respect yeah um and ask them how they got there and how they're how they're doing it you're not going to have the you're not going to end up on the same path you know copying them uh probably won't be the the way to go but you'll end up with a, a base point with a point of reference and you can kind of you know tweak it to your own self and i think you can apply that to you know to most industries yeah well I sorry not right. most industries well most creative industries yeah i think you're right sure i think it's that's that's kind of how it works isn't it yeah basically thanks man mate it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me I flew by didn't it should we <coughs> should go and get another roomie how long have we been talking for uh it's an hour and 15 oh i've yeah i've I'm certainly finished this umi yeah nice one man all right thank you so there you go that was me and tim and i hope you enjoyed it i did say he was a total legend and uh, yeah, we had a proper laugh, like I said, during that period we spent in France. I've got to say that's one of the aspects of traveling that I'm enjoying the most now, now that things have opened up once again. You know, you just end up meeting like-minded people from various parts of the world, sharing experiences, swapping stories. Um, and that's really been the, the, the theme of this trip. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be releasing more of these episodes over the next few weeks. Um, all with very different and fascinating individuals. So uh, subscribe if you want to hear those and, uh, you know, share it if you've enjoyed the episode. Drop me a line, podcast at wearelookingsideways.com. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. All right, so Housekeeping Corner. Now, if you're a regular listener, um, you will have heard me talk about what I've been referring to as this idea to find a media apprentice for a while now. I think I started talking about it probably like a couple of years ago, really. And the idea was that I was looking to give somebody a, a platform to get into the industry, the, the creative industry, um, by helping them release some work. And 
by helping and by mentoring them really and showing them like how to kind of get their stuff out there. So I mentioned that I'm working with DB at the minute. So I've joined up with DB to do this and we have launched the DB Times Looking Sideways Fund. Um, and yeah, I'm excited. We want to find the next generation of creatives basically and help them tell tell their story. You know, what what story have you got that you're dying to tell the world? world? And you know, we're not going to limit people by medium. We're looking for photographers, writers, you know, podcasters, journalists, artists, filmmakers. If you've got a story to tell, we want to hear from you and we're going to help you get your project out there. So this is how it's going to work. Um, there's a link that we've put up on the DB site, which leads to the DB Fund page and you can apply there. There's a there's, there's a little link that you can apply. You can tell us about your, your idea. Um, we need you to sell the idea. You know, it's not like, hey, I want to go snowboarding in Steamboat Springs. Can you give me some money to do that? We want to find interesting stories. We want to find diverse stories. You know, ideally we want to find stories that aren't coming from the usual section of society. I'm being polite here. That most of the stories that get told in the world that I populate come from. Um, so if you've got an idea that you're dying to tell, um, we want to hear from you. And what's going to happen is this is going to run till the end of August. And basically we'll get at that point, we're going to choose two winners these winners are going to receive up to five grand to make the project a reality, five grand each. Um, so that's going to be part of it. You know, we'll help you work out how to use that money effectively so that you can get your projects off the ground. We're going to team you up with some mentors, um, probably from my network, from DB's network, who are going to help, who are going to help you put this thing together. You know, like I've made books, events, I've organized exhibitions, I, I do podcasts, I'm a writer, you know, we're connected to filmmakers, photographers, there's basically an unrivaled, you know, brain farm out there, for want of a better phrase, that we're going to tap into and we're going to get match up with people who can help you get this idea off the ground, basically. Um, you can You can be interviewed by me when it's released, I'm going to do a special episode in which I'm going to talk to the winners on this podcast about their projects. Um, you might end up being featured in the DB documentary series, Pack Heavy Chase Light, um, which is directed by legendary surf filmmaker Sam Moody as well. So it's a pretty decent prize, this, that me and DB have put together. I think you'll agree. Um, so that's it, really. There's a couple of months. I'm going to be talking about this quite a lot. I'm going to be talking about it most episodes. I'm going to be talking about it on my social media at We Look Sideways. DB are going to be promoting it. I'm going to be asking friends to share it. And we want to spread the net wide. We want to find people. So feel free to drop me a line if you've got any questions. You can find me at We Look Sideways, like I said on Instagram. You can email me at podcast at wealookingsideways.com. Um, I got rid of Twitter and Facebook a while back now, so you can't really find me on there. Um, I am on LinkedIn, weirdly. That's the one I've ended up still on, um, which is bizarre. So you can get me on there. I do try and reply. Um, I'm not always the quickest, but I will try and get back to you. Um, but, you know, I, I, when I talked about this on Instagram previously, a few people responded and were like, well, that sounds amazing, but, you know, oh, my idea won't be good enough. And, you know, I think hopefully you've listened to Tim and you've heard how he got into it. And you've heard how you've just got to take these opportunities and you've got to work out how to sell yourself and sell your story. So what have you got to lose? Just get it out there. Apply. Let's hear from you. Um, and who knows? We might end up working together. 
so there you go I told you it was exciting and I'm I'm really hyped I'm really happy to be working with DB on this because like I say it's an idea that I've had for a couple of years and they have been massively supportive in helping me get it off the ground so there you go um all right that's enough for this week I will be back soon with another episode but in the meantime nice one